with the concepts of grace, which is God's unmerited favor toward us in Christ, and His peace, the bestowal of blessing and mercy. With those things firmly placed in our minds, we move on to verses 3 to 14 of Ephesians 1. And before we begin our exposition of the first four verses of this particular paragraph, I think it would be good for us to read the entire section that will occupy our hearts and minds over not only this message tonight, but over the next two also, and that is verses 3 through 14. So you follow along as I read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory." In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Now, of course, as I said, we're not going to be able to cover each of those verses tonight even though the Greek text of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, what we just read, is actually one sentence. You think I speak with many words in one sentence. I'm taking after my mentor, the Apostle Paul. One said, Paul's blessing of God is unusually long. One sentence containing 202 words. He does this by using 32 prepositional phrases, 21 genitive expressions, not counting genitives connected to a preposition, six relative clauses, and five adverbial participle clauses. Now that's a mouthful. That is one long sentence. And I really wish that we could cover it in one setting because I'm sure that's what Paul would intend for his readers to understand the full weight, the full power of the expression of sovereign salvation in those verses. But alas, we have to stop in uh, oh, about 40 minutes or so and have some fellowship, but that's all right. We'll return next Lord's Day if it's His will, and we'll just continue on until we see the full sweep 
of God's matchless salvation that he's brought to us in Christ. Now, really, if you understand verses 3 to 14, as so many have done, you'll see that it really somewhat neatly fits into the three messages that will occupy us from this text. And that is, we'll cover four verses tonight, uh, verse 3, 4, 5, and 6. Next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we'll cover verses 7 through 10, and then we'll finish up in the third part of this series with verses 11 to 14. And that will give us three parts to a fantastic declaration of Paul regarding this most important matter of sovereign salvation. Now, what I want to do is give you four outline points tonight, four points that have within each of these points two questions that I want to pose and then answer. It's sort of like a catechism. How many of you are familiar with that word catechism? Catechism in the church is the idea of teaching or instruction, catechetical instruction. And in a sense, Paul wants to teach the Ephesians a catechetical device. He wants to instruct them about this great salvation. And in a sense, what he does is he poses a list of questions throughout this section, and then he answers them. And what I want to do with these four outline points is to give you two questions apiece. So we'll have four points with eight questions. We're going to give you two questions for each of the points that Paul wants to make in these verses. And the first one is this, the proper response to God's sovereign salvation. What is the proper response to God's sovereign salvation? And here it is. Here's the answer. It's not the first question I'm going to pose, but here's the outline point. It should be praise. That's the proper response. The proper response to God's sovereign salvation should be his praise. Look at verse 3. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, this is what we might be able to call a setup verse. It's as though this is the title of the entire passage. This is like either the title or the subtitle that's going to explain everything else. It's an overall heading of this long sentence which frames the proper response we who are Christians ought to have regarding this sovereign salvation that we've received from the Lord. And Paul starts out by using the word blessing. Do you see it there? It's a Greek term from which we derive, by the way, our English word eulogy, eulogy which means to speak well of someone, which is really, really interesting because that's far too tame a word for what Paul is intending here. He's not just saying we want to speak well of God because of what he's granted to us in this sovereign salvation. Paul bursts out in magnanimous praise to God for what God has done for him, for his readers, and for us. He's declaring something. That's what he's doing. He's not just speaking well of God. He's not, not just giving an aside of thanks to God. He is, he is blasting forth, 
pouring forth with praise, with all of these prepositional phrases, with all of these adverbial participles. He cannot contain himself with the praise that is in his heart for the grace and the peace that he's received from God. And he wants to share it with the Ephesians. And that's what he's doing in this verse. Now, I said I was going to ask two questions for each of these outline points, and here's the first one. Here's the first one. Who is to be praised? Who is to be praised? That's like a catechetical question. Well, who is the one who has granted us this salvation? Who is this one to be praised? And here's Paul's answer. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not as though Paul is encouraging his readers to praise God although that would be true as far as it goes. He's not saying, look, I want to tell you about this salvation, and here's what I want you to do. I want the salvation that I'm going to describe to induce praise in you. He could have said that, and in a sense, he is calling for that to some degree, but here's what he's really doing in verse 3. Paul's saying, I'm going to tell you about sovereign salvation, but here's what it's doing to me. Praise God. Praise God. We could even say it like this. It could be translated this way. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's the one praising God in the context of his description of sovereign salvation. He's actually praising God himself. Now, it does induce us to pray God, to, be sure, to praise God, to be sure, but Paul is doing it himself. He can't help himself. He's actually praising God. God. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that really brings us to the second question of the verse. With what has he blessed us? Well, Paul, if there's someone to be praised, and it's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, with what has he blessed us? And here's his answer. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And I want you to notice right off the bat, he uses that word blessing three times, three times in the one verse. He uses a form of the word blessing, blessed is God, blessed be God. And then he says, who has blessed us in Christ? And then he says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, blessing, blessing, blessing. I want to praise God. I want to bless God. Sometimes you might even hear Christians say, bless God. And it's almost as though we're saying something that sounds untoward. But the idea, again, of blessing is praising, honoring, bestowing honor. And so Paul says here, blessed is God, honor to God. For what, Paul? Because he's blessed us in Christ. Not that God has honored us, but He's given us salvation. He's bestowed on us salvation. We bless God. We praise Him because of what He has done in blessing us with salvation. And He's blessed us, He says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Amazing. God is to be praised, Paul says. He's inducing us to praise because he himself is exploding in a praise-induced declaration to God's great acts of kindness and mercy upon us by effectuating his grand plan of sovereign salvation. 
He'll write about blessing us and our in turn praising him again in verse 6. Look at verse 6, with which he has blessed us. Verse 12, that he might be that we might be to the praise of His glory. And the end of verse 14, to the praise of His glory, to the blessing of His glory. He's so filled with praise that He continues to speak of the greatness of God and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ due to the fact that God the Father has chosen us, He's blessed us, all true believers, with what he calls in verse 3, do you see it here, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What does that mean? All the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. What does that mean? Well, what does Paul mean? Well, exactly what he's saying in verses 3 to 14. All the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are simply these things. God dwells in heaven, And God is bestowing these blessings upon us here on the earth. And those blessings are from heaven to us back to heaven because they are spiritual realities that are true about us in the here and now. And they will be absolutely and perfectly true of us when we get to heaven. You see the reciprocal nature of this? God's in heaven and he's blessing those on earth with this sovereign salvation so that we can live that blessing here and now so that it can accrue to us ultimately and finally to the greatest blessing of all which will be with God in heaven when we'll receive all of these blessings in their utter fullness. That's what he's saying. You say, well, what kind of blessings are these? Can you enumerate them? Yes, there are at least 15 of them in verses 3 to 14. Here they are. Blessed in the heavenly places. That's one of them, just the very thing we're talking about. Verse 3. God choosing us to be saved. Verse 3. God working on us, in us, for us, to make us holy and blameless. Verse 4. God loving us by predestining us. Verse 5. And God predestining us to adoption as sons of God. Verse 5. Blessing us in the beloved one. That's Christ. Verse 6 redemption through his blood. That's a great spiritual blessing. Verse 7, forgiveness of our trespasses. That's another one. Verse 7, God making known to us the mystery of his will. That's verse 9. God uniting all things, including us in Christ. Verse 10, obtaining on our behalf an inheritance. Verse 11, predestining us so that we might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 12, blessing us with the hearing of the word of truth. That is the gospel of our salvation. Verse 13, Sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, verse 13. Guaranteed by the Spirit, our inheritance, until the future day when we actually acquire it, verse 14. That is a phenomenal number of blessings, spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that we get to begin to live out now in the here and now. Spiritual blessings. These are heavenly realities And they're simply those things which are true of us now spiritually and they're made possible to us in the spiritual realm of heaven where God dwells and he bestows those on us so that we might praise him both now and then forever perfectly in heaven when they are bestowed on us in their utter fullness so that God might be praised because he's all in all. And that, my friends is why we have the proper response and the only proper response, and that's to praise Him. Praise. That's the proper response. Number two. Number two. Let's call it the principal reason 
to praise God and his sovereign salvation. What's the principal reason to praise God and his sovereign salvation? Here it is, his doctrine of election. That's the principal reason to praise God, his doctrine of election. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now that is almost getting me out of my shoes as I speak. Because if you think about this concept of the doctrine of divine election, you come to the place where you realize that there was a plan in the heart and mind of God before we were ever born whereby God chooses us, us. And he chooses us, it says, before the foundation of the world. And not only that, so that we might be holy and blameless before him. Do you see what that verse is teaching us? I take this concept of the doctrine of election from Paul's specific phrase. Do you see it there? Even as he chose us in him, in Christ. Chose, ek legomai. Could be translated as just as he chose us or perhaps because he chose us or maybe even better, for as he chose us to do something, be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ, before time began, God chose. Before time began, God chose. That Greek verb there, ek legomai. The verb Paul uses is God's free, sovereign choice to elect those, to select those whom he wills to choose. That's what it means. There isn't anything inherently worthy in us that motivates God to choose us as over against someone else who isn't chosen. In fact, do you notice here in this verse and throughout this paragraph that there isn't anything here in the text of Holy Scripture which even speaks about those who are not chosen? It's only speaking about those who are. And as a matter of fact, you could say it like this, since there was no obligation on the part of God the Father to choose us, and since there isn't anything whatsoever within us that merits His choosing, then there is no basis for God doing it except one thing, and one thing alone, His sovereign choice to do it. That's it. His sovereign choice to do it. The wonder of our salvation is not that God chose some. The wonder of it all is that He chose anyone. And the great wonder of all wonders, if you're looking in the mirror, is that He chose you or that He chose me. Spurgeon said one time, I am so grateful that God chose me because I surely would never have chosen Him. That's true. God's free, unfettered choice sovereignly. There's nothing in us. Nothing. And that's the principal reason why we should praise God 
for his sovereign salvation because there wasn't anything conditioned within our lives because of us, because of any inherent goodness, because of virtue, nothing whatsoever. Because the fact is, there isn't anything virtuous within us. When we are born into this world, we are born sinners, we're depraved, we deserve nothing, we merit nothing, there's nothing inherent within us, there are no good works, there are no meritorious deeds, there's nothing within us that would ever have caused the God of our salvation to say, now Sally, she's such a good person, I ought to choose her. Oh, Fred is such a wonderful human being and he does so many good works, I think on the basis of that, I'll choose him. Not at all. Not at all. You say, really? I want you to show me this from the Bible, all right? You don't have time probably to look up all of these, but I want to just give them to you. So write a few of these down. We'll, we'll, uh, write a few of these down. We'll look f- uh, through a few of them, but you write some of these down. Nehemiah 9.7. Write that down. Nehemiah 9.7. Here's what it says. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. Who chose? God chose. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram. Psalm 105, 26. Psalm 105, 26. He, speaking of God, sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. God God does the choosing. Aaron certainly didn't do the choosing. Moses, by no means, did the choosing, right? How about Isaiah 41, 8? Isaiah 41.8, but you Israel, speaking of Jacob who later became Israel, but you Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. You say, oh, well, see, it was because he was the friend of God, and so therefore because he was the friend of God, God chose his friend. No, remember, Abram was a pagan man. He wasn't Abraham, and God sovereignly chose to put his love, set his love upon Abram, and it wasn't because Abram was a very nice fellow. Not at all. He was a pagan man. He was a sinner through and through. 1 Kings 11.34 For the sake of David my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. You, you can't go through the Bible. You can't look at these patriarchs. You can't look at anyone without this continual refrain that God chose, God chose, God chose, God chose. Let's go over to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And now we'll see in Deuteronomy 7 the whole lot of the Israelites who are said to be chosen by God. Deuteronomy chapter 7 beginning in verse 7. Deuteronomy 7 and 8. 7, 7, and 8. It was not, God says, it was not because you, speaking of the Jews, were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You say, why did God choose us? Why did he choose the Jews? How odd of God to choose the Jews. Why? Why did he do so? Was there anything inherent within them? Were they the largest people? Were they the best looking people? Were they the most uh, strong of peoples? No. 
He says in verse 8 right here, here's the reason I chose to do it, because I chose to set my love upon you. You say, well, it seems like you ought to have another reason other than that. I mean, surely there's something else. Oh, maybe it's not the inherent goodness, if there isn't any, in a man. Well, I mean, are there any other factors? Here's one. God chose. He chose. He sovereignly chose. He, he sovereignly decided to set his love upon a people, the Jews. That's what he decided. And he decided because he decided. He chose because he chose to choose. That's what he did. Look at chapter 10 of Deuteronomy. Chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. And I like the fact that it says he's not partial there. Because there are those who object to the doctrine of divine election by God choosing some and not choosing others, and they say, well, that's inherently partial. But it says right there, I chose you, and I'm not partial. You say, I don't understand that. God chose, and he's not partial. That's what it says. Remember? Remember the premise? He didn't have to save any of us. He didn't have to save any of us. He didn't have to call any of us. He didn't have to choose any of us. He chose whom he chose because that was his will. Look at chapter 14 of Deuteronomy. Verse 2. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God chose because God willed it so. And, by the way, if God wanted to, if this was the plan, if this is what he desired, when Adam fell into transgression and plunged the whole human race into the same perdition, God could have said, if that was his plan, I'll let the whole human race perish because of their sin. But out of the mass of sinful humanity, God desired, desired to set his love upon a group of people. And you can call them the elect, you can call them the bride, you can call them the church, you can call them the people of God. But here in the new covenant age, God set his love on a group, the elect, because he sovereignly chose to do so. That's election. That's what ek legomai means. God, God chooses, he sovereignly decides you want to see a passage from the New Testament? Look at Romans chapter 9, verses 10 to 13. You say, well, you're getting into the deep water of the theological pool here. Yes, Romans 9, 10 to 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Paul's setting us up. He's setting us up. 
And he's saying, I want to set up for you this idea of God's sovereign choice, and I want to show you that it wasn't as a result of anybody doing anything good or bad. And here it is, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. You say, what is the basis of election? God's call. What is the basis of God's call? His electing purpose. And what is that purpose? His purpose to save. His sovereign purpose to save. And Paul would add, because of verse 3, and what's our response? What's the proper response? Praise. Praise. Praise to God. Praise to God. Not because of any works, but because of His call. Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So here's our first question with outline point number two. It's a long way to get to that first question, but here it is. When did God choose to elect me? When did he choose to elect you? When did this election of certain ones take place? Do you see it in the text of verse four? Before the foundation of the world. You know what that does? It takes it completely out of the realm of any human being taking any credit because you weren't even here. You weren't even born. In fact, the world wasn't even created at all before the foundation of the world. God's will to elect us before the foundation of the world means that before we were ever conceived, let alone born into this world, we were chosen by God the Father. You know what A.W. Pink said about the doctrine of election? It's the most pride-crushing doctrine in all of Scripture. It just humbles you because it shows you you're not in control. It shows me that I didn't have anything to do with this. And I told you, I think in one of the earlier messages, like the Puritans used to say, the only thing that we bring to salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. That's what we bring to it. As sad a reality as that is, that's what we do. John 17, 24. Jesus said, you, speaking of God the Father, loved me before the foundation of the world. There was an inner Trinitarian agreement, a covenant for Jesus to come into this world to save sinners and for God to initiate that very plan for Christ to accomplish it and for the Spirit to seal it to our hearts. And Jesus said that occurred, that agreement, before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1.20 Speaking about Christ the Lamb, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. You say, that's another one of those sticky theological words, foreknowledge. Yes, here it is, foreknowledge. It means God, before time began, desired to bless us by creating for us a love relationship with Himself. That word, know, that means intimate knowledge, a love relationship. That's why when, when Mary became pregnant and Joseph knew that he'd not known her, he wanted to put her away, divorce her. He 
had not known her. It's not just some kind of a cursory knowledge or uh, some kind of surface understanding. That idea of knowledge means a relationship and intimacy. And the word for that goes on the front of foreknowledge means that God desired a love relationship with us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And if you're still in Romans, look at chapter 8. You know this passage so very well. Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called or the called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, that is, before time began, he desired a love relationship with us. He also predestined, predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. And when did he do this? The Bible says here in Ephesians 1, 4, before the foundation of the world. Isn't that glorious? So very wonderful. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. Telling us again, it's all over our Bibles about God's choosing us, His calling us, His desire to know us. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, and it wasn't because of something inherent within us, some kind of virtue, it was because of His sovereign choice. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. How do we know that they've been chosen? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Verse 13 of chapter 2. But we all ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel. Calling, 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 electing, electing, electing grace, foreordination, foreknowledge, predestination. 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, same thing. And here comes the second question of this very, very primary reason that we should praise God. Why was I elected? Why was I elected? Here's the answer, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Why? What's God's plan? What's, what's the future? What's the point? The point isn't just that God elected you and then He's going to leave you as you are. No, he elected you for the purpose that you and I should be holy and blameless before him. Holy, set apart for God's exclusive possession so that you might live to his praise and blamelessness that you can so work the work of sanctification by the Spirit in your soul through your obedience, through hard work, through slaying sin, relying on the Spirit, thinking of the cross, because you want to be holy, because you want to be blameless. 
You don't want any reproach, any stain, any smudge on the character of Christ, the one who saved you. You don't want to dishonor God. That's why you're not saved to sin. You're, you're saved to glory. You're saved to serve. You're saved to be sanctified, holy and blameless. Look at chapter 4 of Ephesians. This is, this is what I was elected to do. Chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what we've been called to do. Chapter 5, verse 27, so that He, Christ, might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. What's the proper response of this sovereign salvation? Praise God. What's the principal reason we should praise God? Divine election. That's the reason we should praise him because of our divine election. So that we could understand it was before the foundation of the world and the why of it is so that I could be holy and blameless before him. Number three. Number three. Here's the third point. And we'll call it the poignant recognition. The proper response, the principal reason, and the poignant recognition to praise God and his sovereign salvation. And here it is, his predestining adoption. His predestining adoption. Verse 5. In love, picking those two words up from the end of verse 4. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And what's the first question we want to ask of this verse? With what motive did God adopt me to be a son? What motive? In love. In love. That's the catechetical instruction of Paul. What motive would you have, God? Here's the Father's response. I love Christ, and I want to put you in Him. I want to set you apart. I want to put you in Him so that when I look at you, I see my Son, Christ. And because He loves me, and because I love Him, we shall love you and because you love me and because you love him, you will love us. And we will spend all eternity embraced in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ because we're in him. And by that, God the Father is glorified. That's the, that's the poignant recognition. I recognize so emotionally that I deserved hell. I deserved judgment. I deserved the worst of the worst. Not only because of my nature as a sinner, but because of my sinful deeds, my actions, my attitudes. And yet, in love, He predestined us in love. That's the motive. In love. You say, well, was I, was I really that bad? Look at Ephesians 2, verse 1. Here's how bad you and I are. 
outside of Christ and you were dead. <laughs> and you were dead. You want to know how bad the situation is? It's spiritual deadness. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is a sad story. And that, my friends, is our biography. But what's the next word that I left off? But. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. If that does not motivate you to see the love of God in Christ, then it might be because you're not a Christian. Because if you are a Christian, you say, what motive could you possibly have? My sovereign right to bestow my love upon you, that is my right, that is my choice, and I choose to do that. And you and I say, but why me? Why me? And why not someone else? And his answer is, so that you might be holy and blameless before me. I've called you to this very purpose. And how does he do that? You see the word there, in love, he predestined us. He predestined us. The verb means to decide upon beforehand. And it carries with it the connotation of God determining something before it occurs. Here we are again. For the foundation of the world, he predestined us. It doesn't mean, by the way, as some teach, and they would be wrong in this teaching, that what this word really means is that God looks down through the corridors of time and he sees those who would choose him, and on the basis of those that he sees who would choose him, he then turns around based upon that condition, that reason, that element, and he says, because you chose me, I will then choose you. Let me ask you. If that were really what the Bible is teaching, not only here but everywhere else, is that what we would call a sovereign salvation? We would call that the initiation of a human being that actually is the element, the turnstile, the key that opens up the door of salvation that God then grants me. Not so. Not so at all. It's not determined upon anybody else's choice but the choice of Him who is God. That's it. To predestine someone in the biblical sense is God determining, God choosing, God decreeing before time began as we know it, and he brings to pass whatsoever he has determined to occur. It is the sovereign prerogative of God to determine the destiny of someone before their life lived, before even the setting of the boundaries of that life, and it is if you are saved because God is conforming you to his own will and purpose, and he's setting his love upon you, and he predetermined that before time began, and because of that you and I will have no part except what God does when he initiates this grace into our souls and we respond and we turn from our sin and we are granted faith to believe and when we do we are saved and that my friends is what we are responsible to do but the very act of salvation itself must be initiated in the heart and mind of God first and foremost 
That's what God does. And again, you might hear somebody say, but that's not fair. And here's my answer to someone who might say that. You know what? You don't want what's fair. You don't want what's fair. You want actually what you don't deserve. That's what you want. You want Christ who died as the sinless one for the sinful one, that's yourself, and you want his life for your wretched life. That's what you want. You you want his atonement. You don't want to try to atone for your own sins. You want his atonement for your sins. You don't want what you deserve because if you had what you deserved, you'd have no salvation at all. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You say, well, surely there's someone out there who's wise enough to figure all of this out and then chooses God first. Really? 1 Corinthians 2.7 says, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. No, all the wisdom comes from Him. Not anybody who's smart enough to figure this out. In fact, some of the most wise people on the planet are very spiritually ignorant, aren't they? If you have time... And we're running out of time tonight. Look at Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. And Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 28. Uses the word foreknowledge, uses the word predestined in those texts. And it brings a beautiful balance. Even in that Acts 2 passage, it says, Men of Israel, just know this, that what you did at the hands of the Romans... That's your responsibility. It's what you did to kill Christ at the hands of the Romans. And when you did that, you need to understand this. It was the predetermined plan of God all along. Amazing, just in one verse. You were responsible for what you did to Christ at the hands of the Romans, you Jews. But know this, God had it all planned out. That's the predestining plan of God. And and what is this predestination what is it to what is it for that's the question we have to ask what purpose did God predestined us to what purpose here it is he purposed to adopt me into his family that's the answer he purposed to adopt me into his family adoption Now, Paul could have been thinking about Roman adoption. There's nothing really about adoption in the Old Testament sense. Paul might have been thinking about Roman law here. But I think if you go back to the Old Testament and you look at 2 Samuel 7.14 and you hear God saying, I will choose this, my son, talking about David. He will be my son and I will be his father. Maybe that's the language here. Every child of God, just like David of old, every child of God, You and I are predestined, planned, predetermined before the foundation of the world to be adopted into God's family because of this. I will be your father and you shall be my son. You shall be my daughter. God's sovereign choice 
to adopt us into his family. And what is that adoption? Well, even if it was in Paul's mind that he was thinking about the Roman law of adoption, here's what the Roman law of adoption was. You took the name of your new family. You were separated from your natural family, your natural father, and you were given everything as an inheritance, and you even took the last name of the family. It would be much like we might think of it now. Everything that you didn't have, you now have, and it was because you were adopted into that family. And if you think of it in the sense of a baby being adopted into a family, that baby didn't do anything. Didn't do anything. You and I, we were babies in ignorance when it came to Christ, and God adopted us by calling us even before the foundation of the world. And when he did, he said, I want to adopt you into my family. Fourth and finally, the primary resource in God's sovereign salvation. Verse six says it's his glorious grace. His glorious grace to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Who's to be praised? Who's to be praised? Notice what it says, the praise of his glorious grace. Now in verse three, it's praising the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, it's praising the grace of the glory of God. Isn't that amazing? This is, this is God to be praised according to Paul in verse 3 and now we get to the end of this section verse 6 and it's the praising of the grace of this glorious God. So whether you're talking about the grace itself and the glory of it we're to praise God or whether you're talking about the one who dispenses that grace we're to praise the God of grace. So whether you're praising the God of grace or you're praising the glory of the grace of that God you're praising the totality of who he is and what he bestows. That's what he says, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's who to be praised. And with what? And in whom? Here's the answer, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The blessing of being in Christ, the blessing of being in the beloved. Do you praise God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in this way? Is this your praise? Is this... Is this what you wake up thinking about? Is this your life? Is, is this the sum and substance of the great sovereign salvation for which you say in your heart, praise God, praise God? Well, it certainly ought to be. It certainly ought to be. Let's bow together. Father, for all of these things and so many more of these elements of your sovereign salvation that we shall learn in this passage makes us, motivates us, challenges us to praise you as we ought. That's the only proper response. That's the only response we ought to give. And so Lord, as we sing now and as we take an offering, would that offering itself be an expression of our praise? Would the glory of your grace the majesty of your mercy be the very motivating factor that would cause us to sing now and praise you in our giving and pray to you and glory in this great salvation that we've received in Christ. Well, Lord, it ought to if our frame of reference is anywhere near correct. And we believe it is because we've been taught by your word. May you be pleased 
as we praise you both now and throughout our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.